have we got a show for you? I've no idea what we'll do. Welcome, my friends, to this charming tableau. Have we got a show for you? Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. This is actually an episode of the podcast. There's going to be more Moby Dick in uh, a, a couple days on Monday. But uh, for now, uh, 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 I've got big news. <laughs> I just got back from the Arctic, and I'm going to be going to Wooden Boat Building School in Norway. So uh, more on both of those things in a moment. But most importantly, I've got a Kickstarter running right now, and I would love it if y'all could check it out. It's going to be going for about another five days. It ends on Wednesday, June 22nd, and it, like, please, please go check it out. It's called Brook to Batiken, which is the Norwegian word for secondhand shop. After traveling to the Arctic, I have lots of stories to tell, photos to share, and new sea shanties to play. I'm going to be releasing most of these things through a series of five small zines, which will explore different experiences and thoughts I had during my adventure. You'll get to hear about my time in the crow's nest, my solo trek across a frozen lake a mile long, and learn the catchphrase of my favorite tipsy microbiologist. This particular Kickstarter is raising money to fund my next adventure, which will be attending the aforementioned boat building school in Norway, but more on that later. Even if you don't have the financial ability to donate big, anyone who donates at least a dollar can get all the content digitally. Plus, I've got a matching donor for this fundraiser, so if you donate a single dollar, that really means you're donating two. And please share it around on your social media as well. You know, Facebook, Twitter, Grindr, Pinterest, whatever. If you're a fan of this podcast, then you're probably someone who gets something of value out of the content I create. If the work I do improves your life in some way, share it with someone you care about. Or, if you hate listen to me, tell someone you despise that this podcast changed your life. I'll be honest with you, dear listener. The Kickstarter has raised about $1,300, but my goal is $5,000. I don't know if it's going to make it, but at this point, I am really pressing on and being as positive as I can. So... Any donation helps, and if it starts to get kind of close, I do have a friend who's willing to put some money in to push it over the top, but I really hope I don't have to do that. Uh, sorry, that was maybe me being a little more real than usual. Uh, I've been really tired this month. I, uh, <laughs> going off script now. Uh, I, I've, I've got the Kickstarter running to raise some of my tuition for Wooden Boat Building School, but I've also been working a full-time job all month, uh, helping uh, do a remodeling project on a house. And so I'm just, I'm really tired. And I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to Wooden Boat Building School, whether this Kickstarter happens or not, but I would really like to bring some of my friends along with me. Uh, and if you're a listener to this podcast, then you understand, I think, that feeling. Uh, anyways, on with the show. Show? Yeah, it's a show. A solo, lonely talk show. Except it isn't lonely at all, is it? Because you're here. Maybe you're listening to this as you clean a house atop a hill in Seattle. Maybe you're hearing this weeks later because you saved up my podcast for the next long drive up and down the eastern seaboard. Maybe you're in Australia, in which case, you I might. I've got two different things for you today. The first is a story that felt not quite right for the zines I am releasing, but it felt absolutely perfect for this podcast. After that, I've got a recordion of one of the songs I learned on the boat, and finally, I will be delivering an epic 7,000-word ramble on just what the F I'm doing with my life. It's going to be a fun time. I hope. Okay, Kickstarter mentioned, episode teed up, banjolily handy, here we go. I am 60 feet up in the air, clinging to a small platform the size of two dining room chairs pushed together. Antigua is somewhere between Norway and the frozen archipelago of Spitsbergen. The Barents Sea stretches in every direction as far as I can see. Though this is not particularly far, as a snow squall has filled the air with small flakes that feel more like little pieces of hail. The ship below me is pitching and rolling and swells about as tall as I am. While the effect below is unpleasant, from where I stand it is downright exciting, 
As the mass describes arcs that swoop me through any particular point in a circle roughly 30 feet across. In the tall ship business, this is regarded as a smooth crossing. The weather is perfect for roaring songs into, and I have just found a new one. A barrack room ballad called, I Want to Be in the Cavalry. Naturally, it has me thinking of bicycles, and of my grandfather. Perhaps a strange combination, and yet, this is exactly where my head is at. A pitchin' and a rollin' a hundreds of miles from land, thinking of a steed beneath me, and perhaps the most terrifying man I ever met. I have always loved bicycles. I love the smooth feeling of zipping along on your own two wheels, out in the weather and free. They also have an added frisson of being much less environmentally damaging than almost any other means of transport. I have heard it said that they are the most efficient vehicle ever invented, in terms of calories of energy put in versus force out. Although I have no scientific data to back it up, I do know that I once cycled 111 miles in a single day on nothing but three Snickers bars and a banana. Plus, they are so quiet, you might just find yourself crashing into a deer that had no idea you were coming. Alas, both stories for another time. For my sixth birthday, my parents bought me a bright red, single-speed, off-brand BMX. Even my little sister was excited. Having witnessed the purchase while I stayed with my grandparents, her first words to me that evening were, You're not getting a bike for your birthday. Proud of my new wheels, I insisted on riding at once, despite the terrible weather. My father took me down the street, running along behind me, hand in the small of my back. As he stayed with me, I had no trouble keeping my balance. As is always the case, however, I soon became enamored with going faster and faster, so he fell behind. His hand disappeared from my back, and I crashed. It felt like a betrayal. This being I thought was all-powerful, unable to keep up with me. When my father was ten, his father, Gerrit, passed away. During the Second World War, his status as a baker had made him an essential worker, which he used to great effect as a member of the Dutch resistance. Gerrit was involved in the hiding of anybody who needed refuge from the invaders. Indeed, I have been told there is a tree planted in his honor somewhere in Jerusalem, though I have never seen it. I am sad I never got to meet him, though my father's stories of him paint quite a picture. On Sunday afternoons, the Duisburg family would go for drives through the countryside, often stopping to visit relatives. On one such drive, my father was misbehaving, and my grandfather told him that if he kept it up, he would be sorry. My father kept it up. Gerrit pulled the car to the side of the road, got out, and opened the rear passenger door. Calmly, he lifted my father out of the car, set him down on the side of the road, got back in the car, and drove away with the rest of the family. Although this was the early 1960s, I am still appalled that my father, all of six at the time, was left at the side of the road. Fortunately, his father soon returned to collect him after dropping the rest of the family off with relatives. I've never been told what was said in the following conversation, but it obviously made quite an impression. While my father's father existed in my childhood as only tales, my step-grandfather was alive and well. Jakob Reiskamp was a widower who married my grandmother, Tina, in the 1980s. Although he took up permanent residence in the United States, he never applied for any kind of citizenship, electing to carry a resident alien card. It is perhaps unsurprising that the man I knew as Opa is with me up here in this lovely weather. The ship below me is captained by a Dutchman, crewed by Netherlanders, and flying not only the Dutch flag, but that of his home region, Friesland. The effect is even more striking when combined with the memory-triggering effect of being around so many voices speaking Dutch. Since Opa never learned to speak English, Dutch became the language of family gatherings until his passing when I was in high school. Nearly every Sunday, my family would drive the 45 minutes south to my grandmother's house. Often, a mixed group of aunts, uncles, cousins, and more distant, nebulous relations would also be in attendance. Every grown-up relative in those days spoke enough Dutch to carry on at least some sort of conversation, so it became a secret language for the adults. Some of my earliest memories are of spending time in a room full of people speaking animatedly in a language I could not comprehend. This may be why I feel more comfortable dining alone at a cafe in a foreign land than almost anywhere else.
It may also explain why I find myself slipping into quiet reverie whenever I am sitting in or near the wheelhouse on Antigua, listening with half an ear as the crew converses in Dutch. Though it might surprise them to know how much I actually understand of it, having apparently learned more in childhood than I thought, a fact I will never choose to reveal to them. Suddenly, I am able to access the mind of my child self. Things I have almost forgotten return with a clarity and force I would have believed impossible. Not only that, but other memories which had once only carried certain connotations now suggest new interpretations. This kind of recontextualization is one of the key things which drove me to these distant waters in the first place. To carry my heart out where there is nothing I know to anchor my thoughts upon and see what floats to the surface. Doubtless, this is why my grandfather and his uncompromising ways are suddenly at the forefront of my thoughts. Jakob parted his hair down the middle in a look reminiscent of Adolf Hitler's. A line you could draw with a laser. Like Chaplin's mustache, I like to think that he had his look well before history's worst failed painter went and ruined everybody's decade. Afterwards, he stubbornly kept it out of spite. It was good enough for him. Why change it, no matter who else had worn it? Small wonder he never bothered to learn English. The day before he died, he checked himself out of the hospital in the pre-dawn hours to walk five miles home to weed his garden. My grandmother woke up to find him out back, bent over his rose. By sundown, he was dead. But by our vader in the Chilechaikt, the weeds were too. That stubborn streak undoubtedly carried him through the Second World War. When the Nazis invaded his homeland, Jakob was in the Dutch army. He was a member of a special cavalry division that rode bicycles. They managed to hold out for more than three days against tanks. Three days may not sound like a long time, but Jakob's unit held out longer than many of their compatriots. This makes sense to anyone who has ever been to the Netherlands. Flat is a Dutch pancake, a country tailor-made for bicycles. Although recent infrastructure is more car-oriented, you have to picture it 80 years ago. Hundreds of square miles of damp, soggy fields below sea level traversed by dike-top paths too narrow for a car. A single time in my early teens, I was able to work up the courage to ask him about this time, already a distant family legend from my perspective. With quiet deliberation, he formed the longest English sentence he ever uttered to me. I was very fast, they very slow. I give them bombs. It will come as little surprise that, like my father's father, this figure from another epoch did not suffer the misbehavior of children. More often than not, I was in trouble with him. He rarely called me by my name. More often, I was younger. Boy. This was always delivered in a gravelly voice, a sound somewhere between a dog's growl and tectonic plates grinding together. Once, when I was still small, I misbehaved one time too many. My opa, slow as strop, grabbed a fistful of my pants and shirt. He then lifted me into the air above his head. I went limp, completely confused by this calm demonstration of absolute power. From that day forward, I always knew exactly who I was dealing with. In fact, this was the only time he ever laid a hand on me, a simple moment to establish vat vas vat. Just like my first bicycle crash taught me to respect the power of the speed a bicycle can generate, Jakob put the fear of God into me early. Although he was a hard man, he was not a cruel one. His temper was legendary, but it was mixed with a twinkling eye that could be full of merry mischief. He was, in other words, a human being, complex and multifaceted. He was the only grandfather I ever got the chance to know, albeit through the foggy glass of a child's perceptions. One Saturday afternoon, I was standing on the small bridge over his ornamental fish pond, watching the goldfish swimming around the legs of the large plastic heron. The decoy was an attempt to stop a real heron which had been poaching his precious fish, a compromise with my equally stubborn grandmother after he mumbled something about buying a gun. Endangered Species Act be damned. When the shout of, Younger! echoed from the garden, there was no terror in it. By this point, I knew the tones. He just wanted me to appear before him. If I came straight away, everything was fine. 
I considered ignoring him just to see what happened. I was not a well-behaved child. That particular day, the call was so odd, I decided to obey. I was curious. I entered the back garden and found him waiting for me beside the chicken coop. He smiled at me. Ah, Junge, come I followed him into the fenced-off area behind the chicken coop where the hens were scratching about in the dirt. With the twinkle of mischief in his eye, he pointed at the chickens and made a grabbing motion. I could not believe my luck. The verboten thing. I was being given permission not only to touch, but actually grab one of the chickens. I set to it with a will, determined to impress. I'm sure it took me a hilarious amount of time, but he just watched, eyes crinkled with fond warmth. When at last I held up a plump hen for his inspection, he showed me how to hold it by the legs and had me take it outside, making sure I had a very firm grip. At the back of the yard, behind the tiny shed that held his tools, there was an old stump. I had never paid much attention to the area, as it occupied a tiny cul-de-sac that was, at best, a detour before a visit to the railroad tracks on the other side of the back fence. Puzz up! Watch it, he growled, a warning in his voice as he indicated I need to hold on tighter to the chicken, lest I drop it. It was not until we arrived at the stump that I noticed the axe with its leather sheath hanging from the hammer loop in his overalls. With slow and deliberate movements, my grandfather took the chicken from me and laid it out on the stump. With a nod, he handed me the axe. To my young eyes, his face had become a complete blank. I hefted the axe and looked at him questioningly. He nodded a small, encouraging smile forming on his lips. I opened my mouth to protest, to say something. He silenced me with a hard look, indicating the chicken with a single, sharp nod, darting his chin at it. In that moment, I felt two emotions at once. Of course, there was the different types of fear. Fear at the proximity of death, fear that I was the one meant to inflict it, fear that I would fail, and fear of punishment should I fail. But there was also something else, a kind of exhilaration. Knowing that a trust had been placed in me, I was being given a chance to prove something. Not to him, but to myself. The seasoning of years has led me to believe that, in his own way, he was trying to give me a chance to access something he feared I would never get. This was a chance to experience a primal connection with the food I ate. With a gulp, I swung the axe. Like my own father during his roadside moment of terror, everything that followed is for me alone to know. If you know a thing or two about butchering chickens, I am sure that you can fill in many of the blanks. Even if you are unfamiliar with the process, it is certain that you can appreciate the effect such an experience would have on a small child. I emerged from the other side of that experience knowing I had crossed a boundary I never knew existed before that. In that almost ritual sacrifice of a single chicken for our Sunday dinner the following day, I had witnessed the full spectrum of life, death, the origin of a favorite food, and the life which it in turn sustained. For the first time, my child's mind glimpsed something of one of the great mysteries of existence. I have little doubt that this experience was one of the foundational elements which drive me to seek a life of adventure as an adult. Only in encounters with that which I previously imagined to be beyond my ability do I find insights of value. This is not limited to feats of physical endurance or brushes with danger, the daunting thickness of a classical novel, or the promised challenge of a high-level university course are just as frightening in their own way as a confrontation with mortality. This is because everything, physical or otherwise, ultimately exists in your mind as you experience it. On the first day of this expedition to the Arctic, I requested the privilege of climbing to the top of the mast. I was afraid. I knew that I had a tendency to lock up at heights. I would often get a certain distance up, look down, and begin to shake. When I began to scale the rope ladder leading up to the first platform on the way to the crow's nest, that is exactly what happened. Halfway up, after a particularly violent swell moved the boat, I froze for a moment. And yet, in that moment, I knew I had a choice. I could push onwards and find something on the other side, or I could turn back, perhaps forever. I pushed onwards. I found a place of peace, solace, and contemplation. Indeed, I doubt I would have survived the emotional difficulties of the expedition without that windy perch. 
Although I had not planned to be atop the mast in a swirling whiteout of a polar blizzard, I am glad I did not climb down when I saw it approaching. For only in this hostile world of salt water and lashing sleet could I make sense of the difficult mixture of emotions my grandfather causes when I think of him. This place, so antithetical to the existence of a creature like me, also holds some of the greatest beauty for eyes built like mine. The blinding white sharpness of a glacier, or the deep black pool of a reindeer's eye. When I first listened to that song, I Want to Be in the Cavalry, it all came together for me. It is that particular mixture of fear and exhilaration that keeps me coming back to difficult memories. Something about facing the terrors which stand not in front of you, but which you carry inside you holds the possibility of the greatest reward. The result of facing such fears may be your undoing, but it might also be the best chicken soup you ever tasted. A soup all the warmer for the twinkle of pride in your opa's eye as he winks at you across the table. Thinking of that look still warms me even now, 30 years later, clinging to a scrap of wood 60 feet up. Life is like that. You have someone running along behind you, hand on your back, to steady you as you find your balance. No matter how much they love you, at some point that hand falls behind. Eventually, sometimes years later, you glance back over your shoulder and see them standing there, bloody axe in hand, hoping they gave you the kind of courage to charge a tank on a bicycle. That story ended up being more about things that weren't happening in the Arctic than actually happened in the Arctic, although the Arctic is very much a part of that story. So it didn't quite feel right for the series of zines I'm working on, but I did want to share it with folks, and I thought I would share it here on the podcast because, uh, you know, this is where I share whatever. Uh, so case in point, uh, here's, a, here's a little bit of fun behind the scenesness. Uh, on the boat, we didn't have internet connection. So when a friend had this song, I Want to Be in the Cavalry, on her cell phone, and I, you know, listened to it a few times and learned it, and then I, I would sing it almost every day on the boat. You know, someone would want me to sing it, and we would sing along and, you know, have a drinking song with it. Uh, I thought it was a very old song. It feels like a very old song in many senses, like something that a bunch of soldiers would have sang in a barracks 100 years ago. Uh and that was sort of the mythology of the song in my head, that it's like the song that makes me think of my grandfather and all this stuff. And it was only when I came back to service <laughs> in civilization and, and like Googled the song that I found out it was written in 2007. So uh, anyway, this is my cover of that song. This is called I Want to Be in the Cavalry, and it goes something like this. Steed under me like my forefathers before, and I want a good mount when the bugle sounds and I hear the cannons roar. I want to be in the cavalry if I must go off to war. I want a horse and a volunteer force that's riding forth at dawn. Please say for me some gallantry that will look all when I'm gone. Beg of you, Sarge, let me lead the charge when the battle lines are drawn. Let me at least leave a good hoofbeat, they'll remember loud and long. I'd not a good foot soldier make, I'd be sour and slow at march. I'd be sick on a navy ship and the sea would leave me parched. But I'll be first in line if you let me ride, my god, you'll see my starch low back for the heat with the laurel wreath underneath that victory arch i want to be in the cavalry if they send me off to war i want a good steed under me like my forefathers before and i want a good mount when the bugle sounds and i hear the cannons roar i want to be in the cavalry if i must go off to I want to be 
cavalry if they send me off to war. I want a good steed under me like my forefathers before. And I want a good mount with the bugle sounds when I hear the cannons roar. I want to be in the cavalry if I must go off to war. Let them fray their flutes and stir up my boots and place them back to front. For I won't be back on that riderless black And I'm finished in my hunt I wanted to be in the cavalry But they sent me off to war I wanted to be in the cavalry But I won't ride home no more All right, folks, it's time. As I promised, I have written a sort of rambling meditation on what exactly I'm doing in my life right now and why I'm making some of the choices I'm making. I initially started writing this just as a writing exercise for myself, but I kind of thought it would be fun to share. It sort of addresses and answers some of the questions that I think I keep getting asked about, like, why am I going to this boat school in Norway where the classes are in Norwegian and I don't even speak Norwegian yet very well? Yeah, uh, you know, like that kind of thing. Uh, and so I wrote this and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, if you if you really want to know about the Kickstarter and all of that, that's pretty much happened already. And... Uh, if you want to stick around and hear this ramble, you're more than welcome to stay. So here goes. What the heck am I doing with my life? This is going to be a bit of a ramble. After all, I am trying to sort out what exactly is going on here halfway through my fourth decade of life. You may find this interesting, navel-gazy, off-putting, or silly. I frankly have no idea. I can promise you that this is me attempting to be as frank as possible about all the emotions that drove me to the Arctic this past spring and which are pushing me toward Norway this coming fall. Okay, I've not written one of these in a while, as most of my writing energy has been focused on the new series of zines, but it seems like it might be a good idea to try to write this down, as I've found myself sharing many of the same thoughts over and over and over again over the last couple of months. Often these thoughts are shared in response to a few questions that my current undertaking seem to promote in people. The most common question? Some variation of why? As an aside here, while I was in the Arctic, I saw a sailboat with perhaps my favorite appellation ever. The boat, a scientific research vessel full of robots and scuba divers, was called Why. No punctuation. So it could be read as a question or a statement. I'll attach a photo to this episode as well as my post about it on Instagram. It's just perfect. Where was I? Ah, oh, yes. People are asking me why. Everyone from my 12-year-old nephew to the chair of the history department at my former university. It was my conversation with the latter that made me realize that many of you might enjoy a long-form attempt at answering the why. Not only of my trip to the Arctic, but also the why of everything I do. Or perhaps not. At the very least, you might consider this a sort of forward, or prelude, or introduction to the zines I am publishing about my trip to the Arctic. Bear in mind, though, that this is a snapshot of my mind at this particular moment. It is not meant to be any kind of rigid plan or even a roadmap to anything. Think of it like that compass from Pirates of the Caribbean. It points to what I most desire, even if I don't quite understand the meaning of said pointing. Finally, this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. <clears throat> I've only been back in the States for a couple of weeks. After arriving back on Friday the 13th of May, which the ticket was $200 cheaper to fly that day. I can't believe that's still a thing. And immediately went back to work the next morning at the Bellingham Farmer's Market. My friend Kate has launched a business selling skier, the Icelandic style of yogurt. Her family's business is called Steen's McCreamery. Great stuff. Uh, she gets the milk from cows on her family's dairy farm, so it's an enterprise deeply rooted in a sense of place something that I find my traveling ways often preclude me from participating in. It feels good to get involved with something like that, even if only for a little while. Less good is the strangeness of spending every Saturday at the market. After all, this was where I cut my teeth as a busker. 
Even after I got relatively good at street performing and was doing it all over the world, I kept coming back to the Bellingham Farmer's Market for the reliability of audiences and the friendly atmosphere. In retrospect, I think I did it for too long. It was too comfortable, the money too reliable, and the experience too repetitive. One of the most common interactions I now have with acquaintances and fans in my hometown happens along these lines. They happily greet me, tell me they loved watching me perform at the market back in the day, and then bemoan that I don't do it anymore. Some of them even seem to think I quit performing, or even playing the accordion. In truth, what actually happened is that I gave myself a present when I turned 30. I never had to busk again. Sure, I've done the odd show here and there, but I've made the conscious choice to take busking out of my personal financial equation. While it made things difficult for a while, it also allowed me to actually love my art again, instead of feeling like I was grinding through the same few tunes and jokes over and over and over again. Busking, like art, is a job like any other. You've got to show up and do your job. If you do your job well, people will think it's effortless. <laughs> I did my job so well, the vast majority of people in my hometown seem to think I'm some kind of extroverted whirlwind who is always juggling the teacups. For the record, I have never juggled teacups. I juggled coffee mugs one time, but they were my coffee mugs and I was very caffeinated. I blame the caffeine. There was also the strain on my body. I could feel myself getting older. I could feel my motion slowing. It felt like I was wasting my time in the middle of a hot pavement circle, desperately scrabbling for a living, and it wasn't what I wanted. Every show, every interaction was too brief. It lacked the kind of satisfying depth I had always wanted and hoped my art would lead to. It has also been odd for me to return to the Bellingham Farmer's Market because it is a place that has not only a very specific opinion of me, but also one that I only interacted with in a very specific way. And thus, I had a very specific opinion of it as well. Suddenly, I am the vendor standing in a booth while a less-than-stellar musician grinds away on a harmonica for longer than seems like any human being should be able to make harmonica noises. Granted, I don't see much future for that particular busker, but if I only had half an hour to live, I would spend it listening to that busker as it felt like forever. Oh, how the turns have tabled. <laughs> but it's not just the buskers that can trap you in your booth. The general public can as well. People can stop to chat for as long as they like. While I'm usually adept enough at conversation to move things along, I have to be honest that the balance of power is fully on their side of things. I have to keep being nice because they might buy something. And yet, they have no obligation to buy something. Many people like to complain that working retail isn't that hard. You hand people things and they hand you money. Well, this is perfectly true in a mechanical sense, it completely misses the point that most folks who are complaining about retail jobs don't actually have a problem with those aspects. The emotional difficulties of dealing with the needs, even brief, small ones, of perhaps hundreds of people in a very short span of time is what takes it out of you. Think about that the next time you have a clerk who seems particularly pleasant and accommodating. They have probably been that way for hundreds of people before you. Once again, this is not the kind of interaction I enjoy. It is quick, repetitive, and lacks the depth I'm seeking from human connections. This is not meant to be a rant about the tribulations of working retail. Rather, it sets up how grateful I am whenever someone wants to talk to me in the booth about something else and manages to pick the right moment. My favorite professor from university was one such person. She tactfully waited for a quiet moment at the booth, approached and said, we have been trying to get a hold of you. It seemed that the history department at my alma mater had attempted to reach out to me, but had been unable to get a hold of me. This has something to do with the fact that in their infinite wisdom, the university, which forces you to get a .edu email, immediately stops servicing said email address as soon as you graduate. The result of this is that it can be difficult for, say, a department to extend a very exciting offer to a former student. My former professor, now the head of the department, informed me that she had gone so far as to find my Instagram account and send me a message through that. As I don't check Instagram every day, I had not seen the message yet, but checked it after the market that day. I was being offered a teaching assistant position. Let me explain. 
The choice to finally go back and finish my university degree in my 30s had been a very conscious one. I had looked at my life and decided that there were things I wanted to do that required or at least would be helped by me having a university degree, or at the very least the organizational skills such a degree would give me for the chance to develop. Those three things were, in no particular order, the Arctic Circle Artist Residency, Fosen Folkeskola's wooden boat building program, and getting a PhD. Come on, you know you want me to be Dr. Strangely someday. If that last one seems a bit silly, you should know that I love digging around in old archives. History professors tend to have access to such things. Which, now that I write this, I guess that's like an alcoholic saying they got a job at a brewery. By the way, that professor I mentioned, the one who is now the chair of my school's history department, she taught a course in evaluation of historical sources, which included a unit on archival research. That unit had a week-long visit to the Washington State Archives, so obviously she was my favorite. So there we have it. Three immediate, short-term-ish goals that would allow me to engage with things in a deeper way. The artist residency would allow me to actually touch a place I always felt compelled to write about, the boat school would teach me to build a vehicle I found endearing, and the history degree would let me get my grubby mitts on some sweet, sweet archives. But I was unsure of where to continue my studies. So that spring, in addition to applying to the two northern endeavors, I also submitted my application for the master's degree in history program at my university. This was a kind of halfway measure. I could keep studying for a couple years while I figured out what PhD program I wanted to try to get into. Although I was accepted to the master's degree program, I was not offered enough scholarships to cover the hefty price tag of postgrad study. I was also not entirely sure I wanted to jump right back into academia in the fall, especially as I had not yet heard back from the Arctic Circle or the boat school. So a year and a half ago, I had elected to pay a fee of $100 to defer my enrollment for a year. Which brings us to the present. That year had passed. I was selling skier, and my professor is telling me that the school has readmitted me, and that this time I am being offered a teaching assistant position, which will cover my tuition and living expenses for an entire year. Although the funding would expire, there were often ways to wrangle a second year of funding. I would get to work in a history department, helping other students study history while I studied history. I would get to pursue my research in history of magic. Archives! But wait, what about the Arctic Circle? Well, as you know, it happened, and it was amazing. For more on what happened, go check out my Kickstarter. And boat school? I had received a notice from the school informing me that though my application was a good one, the school's class had already filled up for the fall 2021 school year. I was encouraged to try again in 2022. I was intrigued but decided I needed more information. I spent a couple of weeks exchanging emails with the school and even went so far as to have a transatlantic phone call with the head of the boat building program to make sure it was the kind of school for me. It was. So I reapplied this past February. I got my acceptance email about a week before I left for the Arctic and just managed to get all my paperwork squared away before I went off the grid. This time off the grid was exactly why the history department had been unable to reach me. By the time I arrived back in Bellingham, the deadline was fast approaching for me to decide if I wanted to accept their offer. I arranged a meeting with my professor in order to fully understand what they were offering. In that meeting we talked, not only about my potential future in academia, but also about the program I was interested in pursuing in Norway, my travels in the Arctic, and how all of this might come together to serve my broader interests. Needless to say, it was a far-ranging and delightful conversation. Unfortunately, by the time the meeting took place, I had less than two days to decide if I wanted the TA position. Here I was, considering two incredible, potentially life-changing opportunities. One offered me a financially stable position in my hometown, pursuing a subject that I love dearly, with colleagues that I enjoy. The other was an expensive question mark, on another continent, in a language I do not speak well yet. All the classes are in Norwegian. After sleeping on it, I turned down my university's offer. I walked away from it. To go learn to build wooden boats in Norway in Norwegian. What am I thinking? What am I thinking? 
I'm thinking about my themes. About five years ago, when I was taking that long, hard look at my life and realizing that I did not like it, everything I was doing was driven more by momentum and precedent than any kind of passion or excitement. Granted, I dearly loved many of the festivals and places I traveled to. I loved the friends I saw around the world, and I was deeply grateful for the opportunities I had received. But much of it, much of my life, felt very samey. At first, I thought I needed a plan to change things, a list of improvements that would lead to a different set of outcomes than those I was unsatisfied with. But what I came to realize as I began to examine my life and look at the things I could change, or at least nudge in different directions, was that a plan was too rigid for real life. Plans can fall apart. What is that old saw, no plan survives first contact with the enemy? The enemy is life. We're all living in a world that will always smash our plans and take them away. I love listening to people who insist that you must own a house or a car or a 401k in order to have stability. Never mind the fact that a house can burn down, a car can be stolen, and an unscrupulous money manager can ruin a 401k. I'm actually less sure about that last one, but I'm generally distrustful of the whole monetary system. I like things I can touch. Hence, boat school. So if not a plan, then what? I propose a theme. With a theme, you have a general outline that will help you make good decisions that will serve your interests in the long term. With a theme, you need not rigidly stick to something that is not working. On the flip side, you may find yourself going after something. So what are my themes? Depth and adventure. It would come as no surprise to longtime listeners of this podcast that the experience of a performer on stage is wildly different to that of an audience member seeing them. For that audience member, this is the only time this year, perhaps in several years, that they have seen the show and heard these songs. For the performer, it's different. The performer has done all of this hundreds of times in the past year. This phenomenon is why I have always embraced a somewhat improvisational style in the presentation of my performances. The songs are locked in, the stories have the same structure, but often how we get there differs. This allows me to have some fresh moments in every show as well. I believe this is why audiences connect with what I do. It certainly isn't my singing voice or the quality of accordion playing, both of which are passable at best. If I sound lackluster about my musicianship, it is because I do not see it as my greatest asset. My greatest asset is connecting with audiences and giving them something of value by sharing my own struggles and triumphs. If you see a bit of yourself in something I've said, done, or shared over the past years, then I've done my job. We have, in a sense, connected. But five years ago, I realized I had strayed from that path. I devoted time earlier in this essay to talking about the weird feelings I had at the farmer's market and working retail because I think it is important to understand the crucial role such feelings play in helping me to make decisions. I don't claim to be special here. Everybody does this in one way or another. Every time I have worked a retail job, it has made me feel a bit like I felt busking. That is to say, I felt like I was not doing the right thing. This is not what I was for. Don't worry, this is not about to turn into a stirring speech about how every one of us has a great purpose or some other Campbellian nonsense like that. Rather, I am simply saying that I think, deep down, we know the ways in which we can help others and better the world around us without destroying our own hearts in the process. I try to pay attention to such feelings of discomfort because I believe they tell us something. Either we should stop doing what makes us uncomfortable, or we should decide that said discomfort is worth it, that we are here by choice, and that we want to push through it. I am obviously not talking here about people in legitimately dangerous positions or places. Sometimes we do not have control over our environments, but sometimes we do. Accept the things we cannot change, change the things we blah blah, serenity prayer, everyone's experience is different. I, I think you get it. This is all to say that five years ago, I realized I had strayed from my purpose and there were things I could change. I was no longer connecting. I was just performing, going through the motions in order to elicit a laugh or a shout or whatever was required for the semblance of entertainment. It is a commonly known problem that musicians have a difficult time creating art of substance once they make it. 
For instance, many comedians tend to start talking about airports, hotels, restaurants, and the like once they reach a certain level because that becomes all that they know and experience. Likewise, many in our society are now wholly fixated on a kind of shadow earth that exists in the digital worlds of social media, participating in internet crazes and current events commentary. That's not a swipe at anyone. I am just as susceptible to digital fads. I mean, last night I stayed awake way too late playing Elden Ring. That game rules. I might do an essay about why I love it someday, but that's a topic for another time. Also, I mention it just so you know that I do actually have normal person person leisure activities and not just like, you know, more accordion practice and magician treatises. I think this tendency toward digital lives is more of a symptom of a problem than the issue itself. I have friends who operate largely in online spaces and they make great art and they are interesting, engaged people who pursue deep understanding of things they care about. The real issue is not digital technology, cell phones, political parties, or any other thing you could name. The problem, I believe, is a lack of depth. It's no secret that I am a big fan of computer scientist Cal Newport, so much of my wording on this issue comes from him. In his book Deep Work, Newport argues that the titular practice is the antidote to the kind of shallow attention the internet creates in us. The novelist Neil Stevenson, a man who has never met a 150,000 word count limit that he didn't push against, makes a similar argument. He has a permalinked essay on his website that informs his fans that he won't be active on social media because it takes time away from what he is best at doing, to wit, writing big, doorstop speculative fiction novels. It's only because he writes such books that anyone has any interest in him in the first place, so why would he do anything else? Having really enjoyed most of his novels, I would argue that his avoidance of distraction has paid off. I'm getting a bit lost in the weeds talking about authors, but I'm trying to explain the first of my two themes. Depth. Depth is time. Depth is nuance. Depth is connection. Depth is worthwhile difficulty. If I want to be someone who sings, talks, or writes, I'd better have something valuable to communicate. The only way you can really have something of value to say is if you've spent time gaining new insight. I used to be part of a smallish artist community. We lived, ate, breathed, slept, and dreamed our shared little art world. Over time, our work progressively veered closer and closer to one another. We became obsessed with the tiniest differences and minutiae in our effort to impress less our audiences than each other. The most exciting times were when an artist from outside our circles would come through town with a new kind of performance or a different approach that nobody in our community had considered. These visits lit us on fire because this outsider had brought something new and interesting to the table. I soon learned that I could receive more of this fire. All I had to do was step outside of the world I knew. The further I traveled from the familiar, the more there was to learn, to see, to experience. While I would be the first to admit, I have had an incredible privilege of visiting some amazing places upon this terraqueous globe we inhabit, these inspiring travels have not only been physical, I place just as much worth in the engagement with ideas outside of those we are familiar with. Indeed, books like The Expert at the Card Table, Moby Dick, The Divine Comedy, A Room of One's Own, The Boy of Bilson, or A True Discovery of the Late Notorious Impostures of Certain Romish Priests in Their Pretended Exorcism or Expulsion of the Devil Out of a Young Boy Named William Perry, Son of Thomas Perry of Bilson, in the County of Stafford, Yeoman Upon Which Occasion Hereunto is Permitted a Brief Theological Discourse by Way of Caution for the More Easy Discerning of Such Romish Spirits and Indulging of Their False Pretenses, Both in This and Like Practices, or Shadows of the Empire, or Frida, have given me just as much to ponder as any physical journey I have ever undertaken. Apologies for putting that early modern title in there. I just thought you might enjoy knowing it exists. There, you see, I found something in my travels and I am sharing it with you, dear listener. Where was I? Depth. By choosing the wooden boat building school, 
I am choosing the more difficult option, thus I am choosing to pursue depth, to pursue something new and interesting to share with others. I mean, come on, I am hard-pressed to think of an environment more likely to challenge me and my perspectives of the world than one in which I do not speak the language, while also simultaneously trying to learn a new subject. This reminds me of my favorite story about Marie Curie. Apparently, she went to university in a foreign country. She transcribed all of the lectures in a language she did not speak yet, then took them home and stayed awake all night translating them. Not saying I'm as cool as her, but those mental exertions may have helped her later insights. So, fingers crossed. Maybe I'll be the Marie Curie of the, uh, kazoo? <laughs> Which brings me to the second of my two themes, adventure. I have already hinted at the centrality of this particular theme in my life while discussing different perspectives. The more experiences you have, the more places you see, the more you can understand the world around you. Sure, you can read about something occurring, but sometimes you do have to go out and experience it for yourself, whether that's a climb up a mountain, a recipe in a book, or a conversation with an AI chatbot claiming to be a helpful extension of the IRS. Take kayak surfing, for instance. Like many readers, I thrilled to the exploits of the heroes and villains of Neil Stevenson's novel Snow Crash. One in particular caught my attention, an Aleut anti-hero named Raven. During one particularly memorable sequence, Raven manages to outmaneuver a motorboat in his kayak using the vehicle to surf on the waves of a stormy sea. While this does take place in a science fiction novel, Stevenson is no ordinary science fiction writer. Indeed, his nerdy predilection for detailed research is legendary and often leads to his books being longer than some would prefer. I obviously do not count myself among the number of such a company of hurried readers craving less substantial works of fiction than the Brobdingnagian volumes of Mr. Stevenson. <clears throat> Kayak surfing, improbable though it sounds, turns out to be a real thing. Not just in modern extreme sports where everything from kites to motorcycles is now interacting with the ocean, but historically as well. The feats of native peoples in the north with their kayaks challenge the imagination, paddling after polar bears, navigating narrow channels between ice flows, and even turning upside down on purpose to look around for seals. Kayak surfing, though, would not leave my mind, especially after I found out it was not just the product of a prodigiously wordy author. So I bought a kayak and tried it out for myself. It was terrifying. One Monday in February, I hiked down into a small, somewhat sheltered cove on the Oregon coast. Although it was shielded from the full force of the waves rolling in off the Pacific, the swells in this little inlet were large enough to make me regret my life choices as I found myself fighting to keep from tipping. Once I managed to get out into deep enough water to have some maneuvering room, I paddled around for a bit, trying to learn the distance between the current wave sets less than 50 feet from shore, and I felt like I was fighting for my life against a force I could never hope to turn to my advantage. To make matters worse, I had an audience. A colony of harbor seals were floating a few hundred feet away. The colder I got, the more I got splashed in the face, the more their barking calls sounded like derisive laughter. After all, I must have looked funny to them. Why did I require this whole contrivance of the kayak to play in the surf? Why not just climb in with my whole body and get to it? Eventually, I caught my first wave. The surge of power I felt as I was picked up and carried toward the shore was almost indescribable. This was something unlike anything I had experienced since I was a very small child, and anyone and everyone could pick me up. It was like riding a horse, except the horse was the size of a bus and had no idea that I was on it. I will probably never be able to put into words exactly what that first wave felt like. As soon as I had recovered, I immediately knew I wanted to try it again. For the next half hour, I kept turning my kayak into the surf, paddling out about 100 feet from shore, and then riding waves back toward it. My last run was particularly incredible, as I managed to surf to within about 10 feet of the pebbly shore, a couple of paddle flicks, and I was back on the land. My woolen kayaking duds were soaking wet, and I was freezing cold, but my first day of kayak surfing had been a total success. 
I pulled the kayak up away from the waves and quickly changed into my running clothes. For me, the quickest way to warm up my body is to start moving, and fast. So, like any running enthusiast, I took off at a sprint. The cove I had been paddling in was surrounded by a crescent-shaped beach perhaps half a mile long, so I had some room to stretch my legs. I happily jumped over driftwood logs, spun around boulders, and exuberantly slipped and slid over wet screes of pebbles. I was so lost in the joy of stretching my legs that I was almost upon the thing before I realized it was an animal. There, lying on the beach ahead of me, was a large body, perhaps 12 feet long. It was a mottled brown color, almost indistinguishable from the boulders and sand and driftwood nearby. As I got closer, I began to smell a horrible stench, like rotting fish and, well, death. This thing had probably died out in the water and then washed up on shore during the storm we had experienced a few nights before. Like any curious adventurer who likes fast sprints on the beach and poking dead things with a stick, I adjusted my course to get closer to the body. I was less than six feet away when a twitch went through the entire mass. With a speed that caught me completely by surprise, the creature reared up to regard me. All of a sudden, I found myself hurtling toward a bull elephant seal at a sprint. If you have never seen a northern elephant seal, do yourself a favor. Look them up. They are either a delightful-looking example of the wondrous variety possible in evolution, or proof that God has a sense of humor. Either way, they're really funny-looking. In person, however, they are large, and much faster than you would believe over a short distance. And they smell. Somehow, I managed to change direction in midair and began sprinting away as the beast lunged towards me. Clearly, I was not where I was supposed to be, and he wanted me to know it. I found out later that these seals haul themselves out of the water every spring in order to stake out mating territories on stretches of beach. When the females show up, they tend to go for a dude with the nicest piece of real estate. Naturally, this tends to be one free of pesky humans going jogging. I packed my kayak and climbed back up the cliffside to the parking lot. At the top of the trail was a large sign warning of aggressive marine wildlife between mid-April and late June a swath of dates that was still two months in the future. I guess I'm not the only one who likes to get a jump on important tasks by starting early. I could tell you the story in more detail, getting into the minutia of kayaking, my research on the vehicle, or other facts about elephant seals, you name it, but the point would remain the same. I went out and found an adventure, all because I had read a book and decided to try the thing I saw in it. Come to think of it, that might be why my mother was so concerned about me reading Harry Potter as a child. That sense of adventure was missing in my life five years ago. I had stopped trying new things. As a result, I had stopped gaining the kind of insights that would make my art, no, not just my art, me, worth having around. This movement toward adventure started small. It started with books. Right away, I committed to reading more books. Although I had neglected the practice through most of my 20s, around the time I turned 30, I committed to reading over 50 a year. These books led to new ideas, new perspectives. They encouraged me to try new things. The end result was a return to school and eventually a trip to the Arctic. But it doesn't always have to be big. While I have been luckier than most when it comes to adventure, traveling to places few get to see and seeing a few things most rather would not, I would argue that adventure is available to all of us no matter where we live. One of the wildest adventures I have had in the past year took place in a squarish area less than 200 yards across. This was a walk with a friend of mine through their neighborhood in the city where they live. While my friend has some mobility issues and thus cannot travel very far under their own power, they have chosen to exploit their small operating radius to incredible effect. We spent three hours walking over a distance I could have covered at a run in less than 20 minutes, and yet it was an incredibly rich experience. My friend had taken the time to slowly walk around their neighborhood and find every interesting thing. Every bulletin board, every tree with a bird's nest in it, every quirky headstone in a nearby graveyard, every funny-looking crack in the pavement. By the end of our walk, I felt almost ashamed of all the things I had missed while dashing toward glaciers, giant trees, and roaring surf. This was an adventure in the truest sense of the word, the discovery of something unseen, unfelt, unknown. 
Telling you about my friend, I cannot help but think of Nan Shepard's luminous book, The Living Mountain. Shepard spent most of her life hiking around a single mountain range in the Scottish Highlands, learning to really see the various creeks, peaks, creatures, and features of this famed landscape. She writes, Circus walkers will plant their flags on all six summits in a matter of 14 hours. This may be fun, but it is sterile. To pit oneself against the mountain is necessary for every climber. To pit oneself merely against players and make a race of it is to reduce to the level of a game what is essentially an experience. My friend in their neighborhood, like Shepard in her mountains, had taken the time to go deeply. To learn a place like nobody else is to see something. Adventure, to me, is taking the time to try to see a place in the way one might try to see a book, a story, or an idea. Indeed, adventure might come when you go and look at a different place in order to hold that difference in your mind when you return and look at something familiar. I doubt I would have enjoyed that walk with my friend quite so much if I had not just stepped out of a cave beneath a glacier just a few days before. The perspective that trip had given me was a startling leap to a different clarity of vision. So, if you're thinking of excuses not to go on an adventure today, just remember my friend with their cane, deciding to slowly go outside and see what was there. It's as much about how you decide to approach something as it is what you decide to approach. Over the course of writing this for you, dear listener, I've realized that what I thought were two different themes or values for me are actually just one. I am seeking a different perspective in order to enrich my own experience of the world that I might hopefully enrich it for others as well. I know, I know, these are rather lofty words and I no doubt fail in that aspiration all the time. But I think that's why it exists as an aspiration to begin with, something to strive for, something to hope for. As I said at the beginning, I have no idea if any of this rambling is of use to you. I'm not entirely sure it is of any use to me. Although I will say the exercise of trying to write this all out certainly helped, at least to clarify my own thoughts. On the other hand, maybe you just like the sound of my voice. I hope somebody does. I don't. I sat down and wrote this without knowing for sure if I would share it, but as I arrive at the conclusion of this piece, almost 7,000 words later, I realize that sharing this process is a kind of what it's all about. People often see me as incredibly confident, striding forward with an excellent idea of what I hope to accomplish, but the opposite is true. I'm just as scared, confused, and terrified as everyone else. Sure, I give it my all, pressing forward into whatever situation I find myself in, and I suppose that might come across as confidence, or at least sheer bloody-mindedness. The best visual representation for how my life feels to me is probably the falcon chase in the 2011 Spielberg Jackson adaptation of Tintin. The hero finds himself tearing through a disintegrating city on a motorcycle, chasing a bird who has stolen a treasure map. Even as the city around him and then the motorcycle fall to pieces, Tintin keeps chasing that bird, risking everything for the hope that he can snatch the map from its talons. I loved this sequence the first time I saw it, and it has stuck with me since. But unlike Jack Sparrow's majestically sinking boat, Tintin, in his disintegrating motorcycle, is still running toward something. I always hope I've got that much going for me, at least. That, I think, is the sheer tragedy of Jack Sparrow as a character. He has been blessed with a compass that points to whatever his heart most desires. And his heart desires... nothing. My heart desires to know things and people more deeply, to see with understanding and to experience as much wonder as possible. If I can then translate those experiences and that wonder and that sight into something of value for someone else, all the better. Sure, I might not exactly have a plan, but by golly, it's going to be an interesting one. And if nothing else, I think it will be an adventure. 
Well, that about does it for this incredibly rambly episode of Strangely and Friends, the podcast. If you made it this far, thank you so much for listening. This podcast is made possible by my incredible supporters over on Patreon. Hi, Patreon people. Uh, if you want to learn how you can help support my art on a month-to-month basis, you can head over to patreon.com strangely. I release at least two podcast episodes a month. Right now, I've got a series going. I made an audiobook of the entirety of Moby Dick. Uh, it's about halfway through being released right now. There's two episodes of that every month. The next episode is coming this Monday and uh give it give it a listen if you if you like moby dick there are more accurate uh better enunciated versions of an audiobook out there that you can get at your library or wherever but uh my version is about me having fun with the language there's just so many sentences in that book that are really fun to say so go check that out uh, also, people who subscribe to me on Patreon get access to a map that is updated every day with a little location beacon so you can find out where I'm traveling in the world and having adventures. And uh, I do a daily text message on that, so you can check that all out. One last push for the Kickstarter. It ends in five days. It ends at 9 p.m. on Wednesday, June 22nd, 2020. Get in there. Uh, I would, I would love to just have it explode and get up to my goal. I'm trying to raise $5,000. I've got a matching donor who is, who will match up to $5,000, which means if we can get the Kickstarter to $5,000, i will have $10,000 to complete this boat building school project. And it's, it's going to be wild. The, the next year is just, there's some incredible things coming. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you have a lovely week. I'll see you on Monday with more Moby Dick. Cheers.